a lot of times people think that everything when it comes to financing and policy is black and white. And this gets into kind of a gray area. Anytime there's a gray area, it doesn't mean, you know, yes, it doesn't mean no. It just means we need more information. What's up, everybody? My name is Mike Shogren here with my co-host, Emmanuel Pani. We're part of a group of specialized real estate investors you've probably never heard of. We didn't start with deep pockets or wealthy families, and we don't rely on 401ks, mutual funds, or traditional real estate investing. In fact, many of us don't even own the properties that fund our freedom. If you ask the money experts out there, they'd say what we do is impossible, yet it's happening every single day. It's happening through a new niche called short-term rentals. We are Short-Term Rental Nation, and these are our secrets. STR Nation, want to know how I gained $817,000 in equity in 19 months using none of my own money? Well, if you haven't already heard me talk about boutique hotels, I just recorded an 18-minute case study for my private mastermind group on how I bought a tiny 13-unit hotel in Rockport and more than doubled its value from $2.25 to $5.5 million in 19 months. But instead of keeping this one a secret, I decided to share it with you guys completely free. Just go to www.strsecrets.com hotels to access the case study and promise in just 18 minutes, you'll know why boutique hotels are my favorite STR strategy in 2023. I break down everything from the renovations, the location, the investment, the equity, the financing, and how to take advantage of forced appreciation. So when you have 20 minutes, go to www.strsecrets.com hotels. And now let's get into this week's episode. What is going on, STR Nation? Welcome back to another episode of the Short-Term Rental Secrets Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Shogren, back here with my main man and brother from another mother, Mr. Emmanuel Pani. What is up, E? My brother, so good to see you. You know what's amazing, bro? I Something that I didn't kind of realize that would happen with redoing the roofs of the villas, right? So this is the very first rain season since we had new roofs. And bro, the fucking peace of mind. Mm. of not having leaky roofs and like for the longest time i was in between because for those of you that have been following the show like a lot of the money from me redoing the roof came from a claim with the insurance company and with everything that was coming down the pipeline in terms of like economy and where everything was going i had a lot of guilt maybe it's not the right word but like kind of regret of like should i have spent the money to do the roofs or should i just use some of it and then got it alone for the rest of it and then just like this overall, so I ended up using the money, all of it, and like paid it out, right? So didn't add any extra expenses to my monthly. And just the fact that like I'm enjoying, like now every day that it rains, I'm like, I love the rain. Because like, <laughs> I used to wake up, bro, like I used to, like there was right before we had to do them and we won with the insurance company, there were, there were months that I was spending twenty five to $3,500 a week in roof repairs. And they were like the valleys were leaking the thing were leaking and there were roofs from like 94 so they were way past their useful life and we were just going back and forth with the insurance company so i was just fixing it to the best that we could and like i don't know just the peace of mind of it not leaking was amazing it feels I amazing bet. yeah I yeah i feel so grateful you know and it's something that like as a business owner you're like oh should i keep this for other thing other investments and everything else and it's like the peace of mind of like it's done. It's done right. It's finished. It doesn't add any expenses. And again, it's very Dave. What's his name? The Ramsey. Yeah, very Dave Ramsey, which is not very much who I am as a person. 
but it's the first time in my life that like that happens and I'm like, shit, this feels nice. Like to not worry. If there were times that we wake up in the middle of the night and it was raining and I was just like, please, no roof leaks. Like I, I ain't got no money. Like I ain't got no, like, you know, and now like I sleep, like it starts raining at night. I'm like, oh, it sounds so soothing now. Yeah, right. It sounds so good. And it's all the money that's falling through my pockets instead of going to the fucking roofers instead. Uh, but yeah, that's my rad. Sorry. <laughs> I love it. Well, I'm glad you're dry. I'm glad your guests are dry. And uh, now you're sleeping good. Well, I'm uh, I'm excited for for today's guest. Known known Jeff for I don't know maybe a year and a half, two years at this point. And he's just one of those guys that's super giving, very genuine, adds a ton of value to the industry, brings a very unique perspective on the lending side, and has some really amazing products that can help people get started in this business for very low money down. And he's just a great dude. Like I, I genuinely just enjoy being around him because he just has a great personality. So without further ado, Jeff, welcome to the show, sir. How you doing? Hey, doing great, guys. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate that introduction. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. So walk us back a little bit here on uh, on how you got into this whole str lending niche and and what got you down this path to where you're at now yeah well we um gosh of probably four or five years ago just kind of this random email comes across we all get them you know whatever updated news that sort of thing and i just happened to open it up and catch a policy update around the fannie mae second home occupancy loan and i'm like that seems, and I can't even remember what the change was uh, back then because it, to me it was irrelevant. You know, I was just your normal LO. Hey, Jeff, I want to go buy a primary residence. Absolutely, I'll help you kind of guy like most loan officers. So, but just it seemed very significant to me. So I stuck it in my back pocket and, um, you know, time went on. We, had started as a family staying in short-term rentals just because it worked better than a hotel room. You know, I have kids that range from, you know, currently the oldest is 23 down to a nine-year-old. So back then it would have been like 18-year-old to a five-year-old. And so staying in separate hotel rooms was not in the cards. I mean, someone would have died. Uh, something bad would have happened. <laughs> So, you, you know, we just rent it was three boys. Yeah. Three boys, we, yeah. yeah, got, got the rose in between the thorns, uh, poor girl, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so we, you know, as, as just part of our traveling always stayed in short-term rentals. And so my son had moved into Arkansas, chased this girl. Uh, they're married now. This would have been back in 2019. We find a place on the lake. It's this great cabin on the lake. And I'm like, I want to own one of these. I mean, you know, we're paying whatever amount per per night. And, uh, you know, I, and I had had those moments back, you know, even when I was a teenager, seeing these just cool vacation properties and ski communities. And I'm like, I want to own one of those one day. So, you know, uh, kind of fast forward and I started looking at real estate in that, that area and it was very reasonable. 
you know, you could pick up a lakefront property uh, for three hundred to four hundred thousand dollars, and it you know is very reasonable. So I start kind of looking into financing options, and it it kind of reminded me of this information I had in my back pocket. I'm like, I only need 10% down. We can do this. And, you know, to backtrack just a little bit, you know, we, we had been looking for investment opportunities. You know, we were finally to a point in our lives where we were beyond, you know, just making the ends meet. Uh, we had excess. We wanted to do something responsible with it had lunch with guys that I knew were, were investing in the stock market. And, you know, these lunches kind of led to the same place. That sounds pretty risky to me. <laughs> it sounds, you know, uh, more involved than what I really want. Um, so then, you know, originating mortgages for the past 15 years, real estate was kind of a natural lane. So started looking at, hey, what does it look like to be a landlord? And I don't, I really don't want to be a landlord. So, you know, kind of go back to staying in this property, uh, real estate prices were reasonable. And so throughout the idea to my wife, Hey, why don't we buy one of these? So we, we go down that road and, you know, she's in agreement, which I highly recommend that your wife is in agreement, uh, just makes things better on many different levels. So we scheduled time. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> Marriage hack, life hack, uh, make sure wife is on board. So, you know, uh, we're, we're looking at properties and we had seen this one that was, you know, very just kind of plain Jane from the front house. And I had kind of written it off because of that. But my realtor, as we had looked at a few different properties, he said, you know, you really ought to go look at this. There's not too many occasions where a lakefront property pops up with a boat dock on this lake. And I'm like, sure. So he shows me the listing. I'm like, yeah, I saw this one. Wasn't real impressed with the front of it, but let's look at it anyway. So, you know, he takes us to the property. We walk in the front door and it's one of these houses where as soon as you walk through the front door, it's got these picture windows all along the back and there's a reason why and we can see it from the front door and we both kind of look at each other like oh there's something special out there so you know we we walk through you know we tell we can tell there's something amazing as far as the view goes we walk out out on the back back deck and it's just this amazing lake view uh, the property is kind of up high and, you know, you can imagine the Ozarks, uh, nice change in terrain. And uh, we're like, this is the one. And so we ended up buying that one. Well, on that same property search trip, we uh, toured another property that was actually the kind of what I had envisioned as far as a property looking like. The only prop problem was that it was wedged in between two fairways on a golf course. And so, you know, we literally, while we're standing outside, almost get hit by a golf ball. And we're like, nah, this isn't, you know, the place for the family to hang out. But what we got to witness was that property 
being utilized as a short-term rental, like a live, you know, it's a group of golfers there, 10 guys, you know, beer everywhere, little Debbie cakes everywhere, you know, just a fun guys golf trip. And so, you know, they were booked and these guys, there was confusion around the scheduling, but they let us tour it and um, found out that that property had a 10 year history as a short term rental, but just, you know, wasn't the lifestyle asset that we were looking for. Mm -hmm. Fast forward six months later, they had taken the property off the market. I was looking for something to do with my self-directed IRA. Uh, and I, I told my wife, I said, this is what we really should do with this money is go and, and try to buy that golf course, Kevin. Well, the reason why they had taken it off the market was is because it was too hard to show because it was booked all the time. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's exactly what we want. And my wife was like, eh, I'm not real sure we want to take retirement money and do that. Uh, and we were having this discussion at a date on a date night. And uh, she said, yeah, I, I'm just really uneasy about taking that money and dumping it in real estate. And the next day, all the Reddit and GameStop stuff happened. Uh, and I was like, that, that's what I was talking about when I talk about the games that are being played, the ones we don't understand, we don't want to see, or we don't understand, we don't see. I never want our money involved in something like that. And she's like, okay, I get it. Let's do it. So we ended up using the half the money for the acquisition for from the self-directed IRA, the other half from a non-recourse loan. And that's how we bought our second property. It's been doing great. They wrote me a check at closing for all the future bookings. You know, who gets a check written at yeah. closing? So that was cool. So that that's kind of my story in the investment side. And we're still looking to buy additional properties to add to the portfolio. But in that, I started becoming involved in these different short-term rental communities. And I found, you know, as I did my own research on the financing, I found there was just so much misinformation out there related to the financing piece. And so, you know, through that, we found this huge opportunity to educate people on the truth around the 10% down uh, second home occupancy loan. So, yeah, that, that's really where, you know, since 2020, I've spent probably every day uh, just having consultation calls with people, having, you know, these conversations around the fact that it's it's a viable option now that people have found this information. So it's been been awesome. I'd love to have that convo. Yeah. Here, because yeah, there's even there's we were a talking about fun, he, yeah. he was like, you know. Even yeah. you, we were like, oh, yeah, I always thought that it had to be this stipulation. Mm -hmm. And it's, that's not the case. So yeah. I guess what is this second home loan product? Because I feel like that's just when I hear the 10% down second home, I immediately think of you. So that's yeah. great marketing <laughs> and a, a testament <laughs> to all the value that you pr provide around this and all the clarity around this. So, and you know, were if, the if, two houses, did you buy them both doing 10% uh, down or was the golf course house? Did you had to put more money down? Yeah, so I don't even do that that non-recourse loan. So and and that's a whole different animal um using money from a self-directed IRA to buy real estate. 
a lot of people don't realize that you can take all of that old 401k money, put it in a, into a self-directed IRA, and there's all sorts of avenues that you can choose on your own how you want to invest that money. So it could be real estate. Real estate could be actually buying properties. Uh, it could be participating in syndication deals. It could be, I mean, you can even buy crypto with it. But yeah, there's all all different sorts of sorts of avenues that you can choose on your own how you want to invest in that money. So, um, you know, look it up. I'm not going to go into details just because that's not my lane. But yeah, we use 50% of the acquisition. And reason it was 50% is because the non-recourse loan required that I put 50% down. So the other 50% was a loan through through uh a bank that does non-recourse loans. Um, so that that's how I acquired, acquired that second property. Mm -hmm. But to go back to what you were saying, Mike, yeah, this has all evolved as time has gone on from, you know, my consultation calls used to be about 45 minutes. Um, and kind of my entry point was a website that I put together called 10percentdown.com. And as we added products with the debt service coverage ratio, which DSCR loan, which we can talk about later if you want to, I had to change that because I didn't want everyone to think that you could do a DSCR loan with, with just 10% down. So that website changed to STR Home Financing. And those conversations that used to take 45 minutes now take about 15 because I recorded a lot of that information and videos. So we point people to the website. They watch the videos where it, it, it talks about the basics of the product, the process, the value that our team brings to the table. That way we can be really concentrated on specific questions that people have on those consultation calls. But yeah, we definitely can walk through, you know, some of those basics that, you know, people are missing out on. Uh, because loan officers are giving out the wrong information about the product or a common scenario is, you know, they go to, you know, that loan officer that they've been using forever. They tell them they want to buy an investment property. They live in Chicago and, you know, they tell their guy, uh, hey, we want to buy an investment property in Florida. And that loan officer never asked the question, hey, do you ever plan on staying in that property? So that's the key question and, and really how basic the short the second home occupancy loan is as far as you meeting the requirements for occupancy is, uh, it's simple. You know, as long as you plan on occupying that property at some point during the year, you meet the requirement. But a lot of loan officers, as soon as they hear investment property, they automatically jump to, well, you've got to put down 20% and, you know, your interest rate's going to be up here. And really the truth is they, they really only needed 10% and the interest rate would have been much lower. So I talk to people all the time that tell me, Jeff, I wish I would have talked to you a couple of years ago because my guy had me put 20% down mm -hmm. and my interest rate was 2% higher than what it really should have been. Yeah. And what what one of the questions that I asked you, and this was what Mike was alluding to earlier, which I was educated on in one of our mastermind calls, is I was always taught as a as a 
as a realtor and a real estate broker that for second home loans, there is a requirement in terms of like how far away it can be from your primary home. Because that the reasoning that was given to me was it doesn't make sense for you to say, call it a vacation home if it's only X amount of distance away. So the code, the, the way it's written, it has to be certain amount of distance away for you to justify it as a vacation home. She not, in a way, it made sense to me. But what is the, what is the actual truth? Yeah, so that, that, that's a great point and some of the misinformation out there. So that's old policy. It doesn't exist anymore. There's no actual distance requirement. And sometimes your terminology that you use can kind of derail the loan officer from guiding you to the right product. So that's, you know, that's part of the message that we've tried to get out there into the communities is never use the word investment property and uh, be careful in certain scenarios when you use the term vacation home. So that that's a... a a, a great example to use. Well, let me let me back up. I'll use a scenario. So it has to make sense to an underwriter. And the you know the example that I was giving you guys earlier was you know a physician that lives in the suburbs. He wants a place in the city where you know he works near the hospital, just in case there's a bad weather, or you know whatever the case may be. He wants a they want a house. Uh, that physician wants a house near the hospital. And then, um, you know, when when they're not using it, they want to be able to rent it out uh, on a short-term basis. So, you know, that's a great example where they only may live 20 miles from the hospital, uh, but we can use that second home occupancy loan 10% down for the purchase of that property because it makes sense. So bottom line is it has to make sense to an underwriter why you'd have a second home close to an area that that you already own real estate or you reside uh, currently. The other kind of along the same vein, and I feel like I'm just going to chop down some of these that I've heard, right? So like we've got a property in um, down in Kissimmee in Florida. And we're, we want to add more because it performs very well. And we go down there all the time and I love it. But there again, I heard, oh, you couldn't have more than one in the same geographic area. But then I think you and I were having a conversation. It was like, well, what would the logical reason be that it would be different and justifiable? And for me, there's another community next door that has three private golf courses that I can only access if I own a home in there. So I'm like, would that qualify for the 10% second home loan, even though it's three miles from the other one? So that's. You know, I mean, it's, it's close. Yeah. Yeah. So where, uh, I, I, by, by accident coined this phrase bigger and better. So that, that has to fit in the bigger and better scenario. So in your case, in your example, you know, you guys bought this property a year ago. You, you love taking the family down there. You love going to Disney. You love doing, you know, things around that area. But what you found is, is that three bedroom, two bath house really doesn't allow you to invite extended family or, you know, it just doesn't have that shared community space you'd really like where, you know, the, you can set up a game room and the kids can go play, you know, whatever. Uh, but, you know, you found this other community, it's got 
you know, five bedroom, three bath homes with a game room. It's got these golf courses that you're going to be able to get into. So if you can imagine writing that explanation out so an underwriter can read it and, you know, they can understand what you're trying to do and why you're trying to use the second home occupancy loan, then yeah, that makes sense. So uh, I love, I love that you said writing that out because that was my next question, right? Whose responsibility is in terms of like guaranteeing my success as somebody that wants to buy this home? Do I tell you the story and then I rely on you to give it to the underwriter or do I, do you typically see more success in writing, writing a letter? Cause it also to me feels counterintuitive because for me, underwriting and, and Financing has always felt very kind of businessy in terms mm -hmm. of like what the underwriter is is expecting. So I wouldn't even had in the back of my mind to send a letter to the underwriter explaining my story, but it makes it makes sense. So what what works usually? Well, and and a lot of times people think that everything when it comes to financing and policy is black and white. And this gets into kind of a gray area. Anytime there's a gray area, it doesn't mean, you know, yes, it doesn't mean no. It just means we need more information. So this is definitely an example of, you know, us needing more information. Now, I like to deal in absolutes when it comes to what a client can and can't do. Because, and, and that's where those consultation calls are invaluable. So, you know, my website's going to give you some of that basic information, but then on that consultation call, we can drill into kind of some specific scenarios. And that's one of those specific scenarios. Um, I had a consultation call yesterday where the client was kind of explaining what they want to do. And, and, you know, I had to tell them, I, I really don't think that that is going to make sense to an underwriter. So we can vet some of that out in one of those consultation calls where I can tell people, hey, ultimately, it's not my decision, but I want to lead you to a place where things are going to be black and white. We're not going to be operating in, eh, let's try it out. Maybe that might work. That, that's not a good place to be. So ultimately, it is the underwriter's decision, uh, but I can guide people and tell them, you know, and, and that's where experience comes into play, right? You know, we've done a lot of these deals. We have an understanding of the policy, what can and can't be done. So, yeah, that's where I can tell a, a client up front. Yeah, that makes sense. We had a deal where a client had bought in the Smokies. They absolutely loved it out there. They bought a three bedroom, two bath but they bought a property that was just hard to access. So you kind of park and then it was kind of this hike up to get to the house, you know, stairs, steps, rocks, uh, and they had bad knees. And so what they found out was, and it was, it was, wasn't real pleasant once we got there to get into the house. And so they wanted to buy another place, uh, that was four bedrooms, three baths, uh, had a better view, but the big deal was, is they could pull up, they could walk right into the house on flat surface mm -hmm. and, um, we, we did the deal. So, you know, yeah, that's, that's just another example of, you know, that bigger and better rule of, yeah, you can use that product to buy another property in an area where you already own a property. The other thing to remember is time frame comes into play. So, uh, you're released from those occupancy requirements after one year. 
So it makes makes it easier if you've owned the property for at least a year to to get a second one done as well. Um, and then, you know, just meeting those requirements of the the better, bigger and better idea. And when I say requirements, it's just, it, it's not anything that's in writing. Again, it just has to make sense. And what do you mean by the occupancy requirements? Because I think some people don't, will, will not understand that. Like, what does that mean in terms of like lending? Yeah, no. And that's where kind of the IRS rules that people see out there because people want to take advantage of the tax benefits uh, kind of cross over into the, the occupancy requirements. So I'm not going to get into that uh, aspect of it, but the second home occupancy product, the, the number one requirement is that you're going to occupy that property at some point during the year. It, it's not a certain amount of days. Um, it's not a percentage of the year. And I will summarize kind of the bottom line of some of the misinformation that you'll see out there. Like you can't have a property manager. You know, you have to be in it a certain amount of time per year. You can't put it on Airbnb. You can't put it on Verbo. Uh, you can't put it on any of those marketing sites. You can't rent it out on a short-term basis. The bottom line is, that you can't put yourself in a position uh, where you couldn't occupy the property when you wanted to. So really what that means is, is that you can't get into a legal lease agreement where you would have to get someone evicted and you couldn't do that because you signed a contract uh, for you to be able to occupy the property. So you read the fine print on Airbnb, Verbo, it states that they are not facilitating a legal lease agreement. So if you want to be the bad guy and go a cancel a stay because you want to go stay there, you could. Um, so there's nothing stopping you from occupying that property. It's the same with, the, with a property management agreement. There are very few agreements that you're going to sign out there that say you have to make the property available X amount of time per year or you're in breach of of, uh, of the agreement. So, you know, even a property manager, uh, is going to be allowed a timeshare. You couldn't get into a timeshare agreement where you have to make it available X amount of time per year. So that's another example. Now, after a year, if you wanted to do some of those things, so if you wanted to do like midterm stays, and that's the other thing during that first year, you know, you could do a two-week stay. You just couldn't do a stay where that guest in the eyes of the law for that state where the property is becomes a tenant. Uh, and that's typically 30 days. So kind of the, the example I give clients when that question comes up is you never want to put yourself in a position where if someone overstayed their welcome uh, that you couldn't just call the sheriff to get them removed for trespassing versus they're in there for more than 30 days. They have tenant rights. You have to take them to court to get them evicted. Um, so that, that's just kind of the example of, of what that looks like. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I was immediately thinking of all the buzz now around midterm rentals. And I was mm -hmm. like, probably shouldn't be doing this if, you're, if your strategy is midterm rentals. But I got one more question on this, and then I do want to cover a little bit of the DSCR stuff before we wrap up, because I, I, I know that helped me, especially when I left my job, because I couldn't qualify for a traditional mortgage for a couple mm -hmm. of years once I left the, you know, safe W-2. 
Um, mm-hmm. But the, the last thing I was just going to ask on the the 10% second down home, is there any difference from an application or is there anything else just to help people come prepared for the underwriting or are there any different documents than just your tax returns and pay stubs or whatever else that you would need for a 10% down loan? No, you know, it's really going to be that traditional process of, you know, filling out an application, providing the the standard documentation. So, you know, that's going to look different from self-employed to, you know, a W-2 wage earner, but it's going to be that typical W-2 pay statements, base statements, that sort of thing. The one thing that people where there is a little bit of confusion on the 10% down second home occupancy loan is that there is not going to be any consideration for that property potentially producing income. So you can't use that projected income towards qualifying. So you have to, you have to have the ability to absorb that full PITI principal interest taxes and insurance payment into your ratios and still be below what's allowed from a debt to income ratio uh, standpoint. Um, And I'll just walk through some just kind of basic things real quick. It's got to be a one unit property, uh, single family home or town home. When we look at destination areas, a lot of condos will not qualify for what Fannie Fannie Mae calls warrantable. Uh, and really the reason for that is, is Fannie Mae really only wants to do deals in uh, projects where the majority of the units are owned as a primary residence. So, you know, when we're talking about 30A, you know, Gulf Shores, Alabama, um, any coastal areas where, you know, there there are uh, condos, those are typically going to be people's second homes. So they typically aren't going to qualify for Fannie Mae standards. Now, if we were talking about like Nashville, Tennessee, maybe even Kissimmee, um, you know, we may find some warrantable condos where you could do that 10% down loan. So that that's kind of the basics around the property requirements that, that people have questions on. Love it. I actually, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but I ran into that issue with my first property, the condo. I went to refi it and uh, found out after the fact that it was, was it non-warrantable or whatever? The one non-warrantable. That do it. Yeah. And uh, paid all the money to go through the whole process. And then they were like, sorry, this is what we could do. Mm-hmm. Like, Why don't yeah. I get the loan on it in the first place? But, right. but you know, what's funny. I, I used that to my advantage when I was buying out the villas on the last unit. Because one of my argument to the guy that was buying it, it was like, look, nobody's going to lend on this because I own 95% of this apartment complex. Mm. There's going to be very few people that are going to lend on it. And if somebody buys it cash, they can't rent it short term because I just approved that like whoever buys can't rent it for the first three years. And I got 95% approval because it's all me, myself, and I voting for it. And so to my advantage. So you always have to know what game you're playing because there's always a lot of advantages in there um jeff what where are you seeing the market going where are the rates going what's happening what's happening with our like do i still have to pay my bill and have a good credit score or that's not required anymore like what's the story (laughs) what's going on well yeah credit requirements have tightened up um now i will say 
if you're talking to most loan officers, so independent mortgage bankers, brokers who primarily only have access to Fannie and Freddie products, they're probably going to tell you that 10% down second home occupancy loan is not a viable option. So the beginning of last year, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac uh, imposed what's called loan level pricing adjusters, LLPAs, on the 10% down second home occupancy loan. And, um, you know, you can fill in the blank on why they did it. I won't go there. That, that's kind of a political route that we won't get into today. But the bottom line was, is that overnight, the fees on that product jumped uh, to from uh, paying no points to, to the minimum three to four points. So today's environment, um, you know, that interest rate is uh, going to be about almost one and a half percent over what you would get on a primary interest interest rate or an interest rate for a primary residence, mm -hmm. which it used to be very similar. It used to be very similar interest rates, very similar fees. And then overnight uh, that jumped. And then what we saw over the course of last year as interest rates rose uh, you know, that margin became about 2% and then you were having to pay three to four points. So to, in today's environment, a loan officer that's originating that loan or has access to that loan is going to tell you it's not a viable option because you can't pass the fees test. So, you know, there's, there's safeguards in place where originators can only charge up to a certain level of fees. And if you go beyond that, you can't originate the loans. So you're going to get that from a lot of loan officers. So, you know, what you're left. That, Jeff, what's the way for our yeah. listeners to ask that question in terms of like, I've been using this mortgage lender and they're like, this is not feasible. How can they ask this question in terms of like, where, where are you shopping my loan? Or like, what is that question that gets them the answer? And then when there are, let's say that people cannot give them this loan that they want, how can they have this conversation in a way that they sound smart? Let's say like calling around shopping mortgages. What mm -hmm. is the question that they can ask to, to understand, okay, these people are going to like have access to this type of loan that Jeff was talking about. Cause I think a lot of people don't understand because some people just assume my mortgage broker said no, and it's no, and they don't understand that you go to talk to 3940 banks, you're going to get 3940 different answers a lot of the time. No, that. Yeah, and that, that is, you're right on with that. A lot of times it's about who you talk to um, and who you know. Uh, yeah, because I, I get it all the time. You know, what, what are my options these days? Because this guy told me I can't do the 10% down second home occupancy loan. So the question might be, do you have access to any other uh, second home occupancy loans other than Fannie or Freddie? Uh, because my understanding is the fees are so high, you can't even pass a fees test. Well, yeah, we got, you know, we're a bank. We have a portfolio product. So we're doing these in-house. Um, so it's not by accident that I'm aligned with the bank that I'm aligned with because it allows me to do loans in all 50 states, which is huge because at time of pre-approval, you don't have to have been decided on a specific area to go ahead and get that in place because I can, my pre-approval will travel wherever you go. Uh, the other uh, by design alignment is 
that the bank that I work for has a relationship that is not Fannie and Freddie. And it gives us favorable pricing on that 10% down second home occupancy loan that 97% of other lenders don't have access to. Uh, and then there's the DSCR, um, the debt service, debt service coverage ratio loan that we have access to that is friendly to people that are looking to do short-term rentals. So that's the other uh, kind of loaded question is, tell me about your DSCR product. Uh, and Mike, if, if I can, I'll transition to, you know, jump into a little bit of information on that. Yeah, let's do it. Absolutely. Yeah. And guys, please go back, re-listen and write down exactly how he said it because there's little terms that he used there that when you're gonna call a mortgage broker, especially if you're shopping around to new mortgages, some of the words that he used there are going to immediately get their ears to kind of like uh, perk up a little bit in terms of like understanding that you are sophisticated. Because what Jeff said at the beginning is a lot of the times I don't know what to give people because they can't fucking explain what they want. Yeah, so no, that, that's right. And then being able to have this, this little language. And again, just re-listen to it, go back, whatever, two minutes, write it down and just get in the habit of looking at the thing and be like, even if you don't understand what it means, they understand what it means and will immediately put you in a different, in a different level of conversation. Yeah, no, that's right. great. Ter terminology can be huge. Yeah, use the word investment property or vacation home uh, can send you down you know, a completely different lane and have to put down way more money, pay a higher interest rate. So DSCR, the, the things that I would say about that and the questions to ask would be, do you keep control of the entire process? Because for a lot of lenders that are doing the DSCR loan, they're doing it on a brokered out relationship. So basically what that means is they're sending the underwriting to the investor to review, uh, which can cause delays. Uh, they are having to have the appraisal review. They're having to have the funding documents reviewed. They're not funding the loan. So they're having to wait for that. So that can cause huge delays. Uh, it also can cause some uncertainty in what they can and cannot do. So yeah, that, that can be another issue when you're dealing with uncertainty around what can and can't be done with the product. So not by accident, by design, the, um, Another reason that I'm aligned with the bank that I'm with is because the DSCR investor that we deal with, we're completely delegated. So from processing to underwriting to closing to funding, we have control over the entire process. We also know what their appetite is around short-term rentals. We know if we can't get financials from the seller to show cash flow, or we can't get data from the appraiser to show cash flow that we can use air DNA data on an exception basis uh, to prove the ratio that we need. So just a quick rundown on DSCR. DSCR debt service coverage ratio, most lenders are looking for a one-to-one -one ratio. So to show gross cash flow is going to meet the PITI payment, there's no uh, debt to income ratio standard. So we're not looking at someone's personal finances to qualify it's based on the property's ability to show that cash flow uh, to meet that ratio. 
Uh, typically, in today's environment, you're going to need to put down 20%. You can put that loan in the name of an LLC. You can put uh, day one titling is in the name of the LLC. So a lot of people like that. But the big one is you're not going to use your personal finances to have to qualify for the loan. Love it. And like I said, this this really helped me out the first two years after I was on my job because I wanted to keep growing. We were producing good income from the business. But when I left, I didn't have uh, W-2s and tax returns for two years. So the DSCR was how we were able to buy that house in Kissimmee, actually, that we were just talking about a little while ago. So it does work. Um, you're not going to do a 10% down on it, but either way, um, it's a great way for you to keep growing your portfolio if you're in that type of situation. So, well, the other one that I would throw out there, um, and I will say it's pretty labor intensive is we do have a 10% down portfolio loan, uh, for second home occupancy loan that's based on bank statements. So mm -hmm. we'll take anywhere from 12 to 24 months of bank statements. We'll extrapolate a qualifying income. Uh, so there still is a debt to income standard, but when we're talking to someone who's self-employed, their bank statements are going to show a whole different story as far as their actual cash flow than their tax returns are naturally. So it is a great alternative, uh, but you just have to be ready to jump through some hoops uh, and provide a lot of documentation for that loan. But it, it you know, 10% down, uh, you know, it, it's going to make that option to buy that type of asset a lot more feasible. 100%. Well, Jeff, before we get into the last question, first, I want to just acknowledge you and thank you for coming on here and for all the other side chats you and I have had and for coming and talking to our mastermind group, really appreciate everything that you're doing and educating people and opening up these opportunities um, for folks to keep growing, you know, and building their cash flow and building their wealth. So where can folks, again, I know you said it earlier, but I want to have you repeat it. Where can they learn more about you and your products and everything else that you've got going on? Yeah, so the best way to um, get to me is to go through my website first because it will, uh, you know, educate you on some of the basics. So strhomefinancing.com. And then uh, the podcast uh, was birthed out of that, STR Home Financing by Jeff Chisholm. So you can check that out. Those are all micro podcasts. So you can catch a lot of information. I mean, you literally can go through uh, three podcast episodes in 30 minutes. And uh, initially it was covering the basics and then we're getting into interviewing some, some experts and, uh, just did my first interview where we're interviewing STR realtors in different markets to hear about different markets around the United States. So I'm excited about that. Love it. Love that. Well, the last question that we ask all of our guests is what is your number one secret to success with short-term rentals? Yeah, it's just uh, picking properties that your family would enjoy and setting up those properties uh, so it, it facilitates your own family stays. And I get that question all the time. You know, Jeff, where are people investing? Pick a place where you like to go and pick a property that you'll enjoy going to because I bet there's other families just like you. So it, <laughs> I try to keep things pretty simple and and that's what it you know amounts to. So like when I look at property listings on airbnb verbo and they're just beautiful and pristine i'm like okay so what are my kids gonna do so that's that's kind of my bottom line to short-term rental success is 
you know, multi-generational stays is the other one. You know, we get grandparents all the time that are footing the bill and that's how they get their adult kids and their grandchildren all together is, Hey, we found this great property. All the, the whole family is going to be, be able to stay there. So that, that, that's what I would say my STR success would be. Love it. Nice Love and that. simple. Well, Jeff, thank you again. Really appreciate you. Looking forward to staying connected. And uh, for all the listeners out there, go back. This is one that you're going to want to listen to while you're sitting at your desk or wherever so you can take some notes. And then make sure you go check out Jeff's website. Get in touch with him. He is by far the most knowledgeable person I know around a lot of these financing options. So take him up on that. And uh, we'll talk to you guys next week. Take care, everybody. Ciao, guys. Hey, STR Nation, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to hit that subscribe button and leave us a review. And in the comments, let us know what topics you want us to cover on upcoming episodes, and we'll make sure to get that in the books for you. And if you really want to learn how to launch, automate, and scale your short-term rental business, if you want to go deeper, then check out our free masterclass at strsecrets.com.